We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. In a sense, picking up where we left off last week, but I want you to turn to Matthew 6, 16 through 18. This passage will not be the whole of our instruction for fasting. We're going to look at several things, but we do need to read the text. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. This does come right on the heels of his instruction on prayer. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, it's very similar instruction that he gives, that we talked about for prayer last week, as far as there certainly is a bad way to practice this discipline like there is with prayer. You don't do it like prayer before men to be noticed by men. You do it for the purpose of seeking God, of knowing God, of, in a sense, apprehending God. And we'll unpack that more as we go along. But I want you to see where all this goes back to. Flip back at the very beginning of chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You know, he says the same thing about giving to the needs of the poor and then prayer and then fasting. It's very much a very clear instruction that goes against the Pharisees and Sadducees and those who would, who basically sought acclaim from just the public. To seek God, faithfulness to God. We have to be very careful about our spiritual practices being veiled under the idea of public witness. Now, we have to avoid cultural pressure, which even those who are most tolerant still want to tell us, look, my spirituality is private. But you know what they mean when they say that? They're not saying hey, I'm being pure in this. I just don't want all my spirituality to be seen by others. I'm just going to seek God. What they're saying is not to proselytize. They're saying, do not evangelize. I don't feel the need to evangelize. This is just for me. That's not what we're saying here. And that's not what Christ is saying in giving this instruction to these early followers. What he does say initially is that like prayer, there is a hypocritical way to pray And this does help us understand something about the nature of fasting. See, like prayer, the purpose of fasting is to do without something in order to gain the greatest thing. Now, with prayer, we did talk about this briefly, that basically what you do without in prayer is activity. I mean, it's one of the difficulties of prayer is that you feel the pressure, especially in the morning, to get up and do or to pick up the phone and check your email or text or Twitter or something. To pray is to stop and not do anything, you know, in the sense of activity. You're doing without that to say, I depend on you, Lord, and without you, apart from you, I can do no real thing. Fasting is much the same way. You're doing without something that you normally and regularly depend on to give you strength or to give you some kind of satisfaction in order to then gain the real thing, which is a deep hunger and satisfaction that is found only in the person of Christ. So there's, there's parallels. So therefore, then, if we do these practices so that other people know we do these practices, 
then the only thing that we're being satisfied in is the very aim that we're setting out on, which is just to be noticed by men, and that's it. It is a vapor, and it will go away, and it's meaningless. So it is basically to know God. It's not to be shown to others or known by others. You know, it's hard. I mean, you, you know, there's been, certainly been times as a pastor, it seems like food is, uh, is so associated um, with being a pastor, and so it's almost impossible to have a meeting where there's not food present and so there are all those awkward moments where, you know, certainly if I'm planning a fast, I, I want to not schedule a lot of lunch meetings. Um, but if it's with a dear brother that I trust, it doesn't mean that I don't tell them. If Kevin and I go to lunch um, and we're talking about elder stuff or just talking about life stuff and just being friends, I mean, I will disclose that. It, it, it You know, he would know and I would know from him that we're not trying to bolster each other's, you know, spiritualized, falsely humble egos. It's actually, in a sense, to even say, man, just pray for me in this. I mean, this is why I'm just drinking some water right now. But you know what the sense is that Christ is giving here. The fact is, is that Christ addresses fasting. The fact that he dresses it at all means that it's something we need to pay attention to. Now, this is not without some intentional purpose for the life of UBC because, like I mentioned last week, in August, we're going to be calling you as elders, we're going to be calling you to a two-week fast. The first week is for the purpose of spiritual renewal. The second week is for the purpose of how you're going to live out your discipleship in service or in mission, whatever title you want to put on it. Basically, for me, it's there's an intake and there's an outflow. And that's what week one is, is intake, getting right with the Lord. And the second week is going to be in making sure that we are finding the right places, but not just the places, but a passion to share Him wherever that is, as we are going, as the Great Commission would say. But we want you during those two weeks to fast from a singular thing. So the two weeks total needs to be fasting from one thing. whether And we'll talk about that more, but whether it's a particular meal or something else. So this has a very practical outworking as we move towards the end of the summer heading into our fall. But let me say in all of this, whether we're talking about Bible study, prayer, or fasting, all of these spiritual disciplines do something. They remind us of the gospel. They do, because we do not do any of these things in order to apprehend a Christ that we do not already have. We practice these things in order to stoke and inflame a relationship that is already intact because of what Christ has done for us. So if you keep that in mind, I think you'll be protected, but I think you'll also then find greater freedom in exercising these disciplines, and they will not bear a weight that they are not meant to bear. What is fasting? Well, in the most basic way, we could say that it is to do without something, particularly food, for a period of time for the purpose of seeking spiritual satisfaction. Now, all the notes are online, so you can find most of this information there, so I would encourage you to, to do that, but feel free to take notes as well. To do without something, particularly food, for a period of time for the purpose of seeking spiritual satisfaction. You see that this is a regular practice, both in the Old Testament and in the New. We'll unpack that in a moment. Let's talk about what fasting is not. And I think that we derive much of this from the text. It's not a religious performance, number one. When I say performance, it's not something that's done before others for others to see, nor is it a performance in order for you to gain something you don't have as far as actually in relationship. You're not earning something, at least from Christ, in the sense of a relationship that you don't already have. Secondly, it's not a promotion of self. In fact, these spiritual disciplines are just the opposite. 
Bible study, prayer, and fasting all promote dependence on him. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they are doing these things before men and getting their acclaim from men, they're actually showing their independence from God. They're saying, what I need from, what I really need is praise from men instead of the approval of God. That shows independence from God. And that is the essence of idolatry. So it's not a religious performance. It's not a promotion of self. And thirdly, I would say, it's not asceticism. And what I mean by that is, that is a way of describing any form of practicing of a religious practice, basically, that is doing out, doing without in order to gain righteousness. Asceticism. So basically, you can see this in other religions. Certainly other religions use fasting. Buddhists use it on a regular basis. Other religions promote fasting much more fervently than Christian, the Christian faith does. But they do so on a fervent level because it is for the purpose of attaining righteousness before God, attaining God's approval. So in this sense, we are talking specifically and exclusively about fasting being a Christian exercise. And I'll say this, I don't believe that fasting, apart from whatever medical benefits you may gain, fasting in this sense is not for the unbeliever. It is a Christian exercise. And in fact, I would argue that those first three things of what fasting is not is the antithesis of the Christian exercise. Basically, that's exactly what other religions promote. Every other religion on the planet promotes you have to perform in order to gain righteousness. Every other religion promotes that there is something inherently in self that can actually perform in order to gain righteousness. So it's a self-promotion as well. So therefore, then the religious practice becomes asceticism. If you're going to do without something, it's for the purpose of then gaining something that is outside of yourself. All of that is antithetical to what it means to be a Christian. And so in a way, fasting is kind of this uh, hyper-specific, realized picture of what it means to be Christian. We are celebrating the fact that we don't have to do anything to achieve salvation, but the fact that we do without is because we want to know better the one who has saved us. And even then, joyfully, we are not called to do this perpetually. It can be regular, it can be seasonal, but it is on purpose. But it's not to gain something you don't have, apart from the hunger and thirst, yes. But the relationship, no. That is already yours. In fact, I would argue on this Father's Day that you should go and aside from being a glutton, which would be completely a wrong response to grace-viewed uh, fasting, I think you should eat, unless you were planning on fasting today, I think you should eat and enjoy like crazy food today. Yes. Because actually fasting reminds us that when we do actually eat, we're eating Yes, bread, and we're eating food, and we're drinking beverages that do bring a temporal satisfaction. But if you're fasting, you actually can celebrate food better. Not because, oh, I'm so glad I get to eat. No, I'm not saying that. It's because it's brought perspective that what you really hunger and thirst for after you deal with those initial grumbling, stomach grumblings and everything of doing without, 
you start to realize that only God can satisfy me. So then when you do take of the temporal gift, you're actually saying, this is a gift. This is a gift to be able to just consume this. I rejoice in that, but it doesn't fully satisfy. And so you don't go all gluttonous because you know it couldn't fully satisfy. That's where grace, this makes it such a grace exercise. So why would we, well, let's, you know, after talking about what fasting is not, what does it look like? Well, according to the text, it looks normal. It looks normal. It looks like you're a normal person. You're not walking around looking fastitious. If that's a word that means something bad, then forgive me. I have no idea. But there you go. You're to look normal. You're to be promoting your own personal dependence on the Lord, not forcing others to say, wow, what a dependent upon the Lord person that is. Look, it'll come through in the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't need to come through on the countenance on your face. So why fast? Well, ultimately, like we've said, it is so that we hunger for God. Plain and simple, this is about the discipline to increase our satisfaction in God alone. Look at Matthew 6.19. The very next verse after this section on fasting, what does he say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, even though specifically the scriptures speak mostly about fasting from food, the idea is anything that causes you to depend on it outside of the Lord for satisfaction is robbing you of true eternal joy. So to do without these things is actually to promote being satisfied in the things that God says will satisfy you the most. So it's a big picture. Lord willing, we're actually going to Start Matthew in the fall, so we won't unpack this a whole lot, but I think you see the implications here. The fact is, is that my belief is, and especially in my own personal life, I can see this as the scripture is my mirror. I believe we have a palate problem. Our tastes are not as Godward as they should be. Fasting has a way of kind of resetting the spiritual taste buds to hunger and thirst for the things of God. It's a good exercise. The fact is, we will then consume what we want and what satisfies us, whether it's media, treasures, greed, or even food. And you know what? Because they're temporal, we will tag them enough to each other. We'll keep a practice going. And this is where bad habits can form because what? They don't satisfy, not lastingly. So you have to string together a bunch of temporal satisfactions. And if you find one you like, you're just going to keep doing it. But it's just robbing. And that's why, what does fasting do? It breaks that pattern. It steps in and just breaks that pattern. So if you see, for instance, this is where we'll stem into things outside of food. If you find yourself in a, in a relatively unbroken pattern of finding satisfaction in media or in some other thing, it's good to break that pattern and replace it with the thing that you're suspicious it may be robbing you from. God. So fill it with the word and prayer. That spot. It has a way of resetting the proverbial taste buds so that hopefully then at the back end of the fast, when it's broken, you actually then reestablish a pattern of feeding yourself Christ. We're not just doing without here. We're abstaining from things that do not satisfy us, yes, but those things are not always bad things. But what they're replacing is of eternal value, and that's made it worthless. 
So this helps us in that reset. Let me give you some Old Testament reasons. There's really only one fast in the Old Testament that's given as part of the law, and that was practiced on the Day of Atonement. This is out of Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. And actually, the word there in the Old Testament is afflicted themselves, which often is associated with fasting. In fact, that word is used often in the Old Testament when it comes to fasting. So it's kind of a derived thing, but what we know about Jewish practice was that they actually did practice this on a regular basis on the Day of Atonement. So we believe that that afflicted for themselves meant and included the practice of fasting. So that's the only one that's given on a regular basis that was prescribed corporately for everyone to do. But then from there, you start to see different reasons. One, humility. Seeking God's favor. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, all our goods. I mean, what is humility except simply resigning yourself that God only you can? The the essence of pride is to say that you can. So when we are in the absence of prayer, when we don't pray, when we don't study the word, and fasting helps reset those things, so I don't want to say when we don't fast because you might stem that into a regularity that could drift into legalism too much. But fasting reminds us of the things that we need to be doing that do regularly remind us of the humility that's gained by fasting. God, only you can give a safe passage. Only you can make provision for these things. So for humility, what does it do? It kills pride in that process. We do confess sin, mainly the sin of depending on self. And it will eventually cause us to bring about some restoration. There are several examples that will be given in your notes. Everything from Psalm, Isaiah, Daniel, Joel... These are all different examples. I shouldn't say different examples. They are examples of what God demands from his people that are all similar. He demands from them humility and dependence. But these are all different contexts in which it happens. So regardless of what's going on around you, regardless of what your various trial is, or even regardless of what your sin habit may be, as God restores you and brings you back to himself, underneath it all, what fasting will show you is you have pride. I mean, in fact, I think it connects with the next reason, which is for repentance. Let me give you a personal example. I mean, I have, I have fasted for several reasons in my life. I mean, certainly for the breaking of, of the pattern of sin, particularly lust. I mean, just as a guy, you get in these patterns. And, I'm not, and I don't mean to say that just as every guy, as if that makes it okay. It's never okay. But to break patterns of lust and other things in my life, I have, I have sought and fasted for the breaking of that. Okay, no... You know, knowing that uh, more equipped with strategies and practices, biblically speaking, that will battle that on a regular basis. I mean, I've often fasted and said, God, take this away forever. That'd be great. And there's a day coming. But you know what? What God does, I mean, as surely as what I think I need to be fasting about a particular sin, what God does is, I'm not saying he made light of that sin, not at all. In fact, that sin ends up taking on a weight that I probably wasn't putting on it myself, but he'll pull it up and even show the more insidious sin of pride. How It's not just that I'm doing something bad. It's that in doing something bad, there's a more insidious underbelly of my sinfulness that is just screaming against God and depending upon him and just promoting myself. Me. I've known very few people who have not resonated with this 
in their own practice for fasting, how God just seems to pull back the surface of what you thought you were dealing with. You still have to deal with it, but he shows you the evil underbelly that maybe in the moment you weren't as prepared to see. Ezra 9, starting verse 2 actually, it says, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves. Basically what he's talking about is they intermarried. Now, if you remember at the end of our minor prophet study, that was a big sin problem among the people returning back out of exile from Babylon back to Jerusalem. They had intermarried with the nations. Ezra deals with it. Nehemiah deals with it. Malachi deals with it. They all deal with the sin. And so what does he do? Well, Ezra says, I heard this. I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the return to exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. It's often associated with repentance. Certainly for mourning, just for sadness. That's one reason to do without. Now, sometimes you're so sad you just don't feel like eating. But it's when you bring in the spiritual dependence upon the Lord, it doesn't always have to. I mean, sometimes the fasting can be promoted by such deep sadness and sorrow. But even in your lack of eating, it can then promote and deepen that sorrow so that hopefully you then depend on the Lord as being the only way that you can grieve, but not like those without hope. As a Christian, deep sorrow and sadness, but still a hope that you find somewhere there at what you think is bottom. In Esther 4, 3, it says, And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree was reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It was associated with the bigger picture. Deep sadness. Yes, some over sin, some over what had happened to the nation. What we see in Jeremiah 36 is basically it's about obedience. There was a command to fast, and the people did. Sometimes God just calls you to it. So therefore, when we call you to it, it's not that you are obeying the elders, but in at least a similar larger category that if we're going to call a corporate fast, then there is something in that where we all join together to obey that we desire to know God better than before. When that happens corporately, there can be great benefit for the church. There's New Testament reasons. Matthew 4, 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. Fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is an obedience to the Lord's command, having been led by the Spirit. Now, this is troubling for some because they say, but God doesn't lead us into temptation. But that's exactly what happens in the wilderness. But what God's leading Christ in here is obedience on your behalf. This is actually part of your salvation. This is where in the New Testament then we see that the fasting is not a rule and a law to gain something as much as it is a reminder and a celebration of the gospel. When you think about Christ being tempted in the wilderness, you can know that he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness so that when you are led by the Spirit to accept Christ, you're accepting that he has gone to a dark place you could never go and withstand instead of you having to go there. This parallels the exodus. The great Old Testament example we see fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He goes into the wilderness. But what happened for the children of the Exodus? In their trial and in their temptation, 
they gave in to false idols. But Christ goes there and he becomes a priest for us without sin. This is the new reality of God's covenant with his people. See, we see this in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us in with confidence draw near to find help. So when you fast, I would encourage you every time you fast to remember the wilderness experience of Christ, to know that no matter how weak you might feel in a fast, that the moment you feel a weakness, remember that Christ had experienced a weakness on your behalf that actually saved you, was part of your salvation. And so fasting surely should at least first and foremost remind us that Christ has satisfied everything for us. So then the weakness becomes a point of celebration. Another New Testament reason is actually for anticipation of the coming of Christ. In Matthew 9, 14 and 15, it says, Then the disciples of John came to Christ and they said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. I mean, I think there's something here we can take that in heaven there won't be fasting. Because the ever-presence of our Christ satisfies everything that fasting would possibly promote in his absence. Now again, we know that Christ is ever-present. But his actual unabated presence with us is all satisfying. So really there's a sense also that when we fast, not only are we reminded that Christ has been tempted yet without sin, so therefore he's the perfect priest who's in our place, that we are waiting for him to come back and we will fast, however regular we feel like we should, we will fast until he comes to cause us to anticipate his coming. And the ultimate break fast will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the satisfaction we will find there is who is at the head of the table. Certainly there's evidence in the scriptures of not just praying, not just that we fast for obedience or fast for anticipation of his coming, but also fasting to focus ourselves in worship. Luke 2.37, and when then as a widow, and this is the prophetess Anna, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple worshiping and fast with fasting and prayer night and day. It was part of her anticipation of the coming Messiah. It would focus her on what she was looking forward to, but it was also a regular practice so that when he came, she knew her satisfaction had arrived. In Acts 13, 2 and 3, corporately, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Which stems into another reason for the commissioning of God's people. The next chapter over in Acts, Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Guys, I think that this practice, very much for all these reasons, for the fact that we are to obey him, that we are to anticipate his coming, and that in the meantime we are to focus in in our worship on the person of Christ, only being satisfied with him, for the commissioning of people unto him, whether it's local elders here, whether we are commissioning people to go on to other places, whether we are looking and eventually, by God's grace, commission people to go plant a church in Boulder, 
we do so with worship and fasting. Why? Because we are saying that only Christ satisfies not just the person who is delivering the gospel, but the gospel itself delivered to those who will hear it. He is the only one that can satisfy them. I mean, this is, this is our treasuring principle. I mean, fasting is not a way for you to hold on to some passion statement for a church. Our passion statement is biblically realized. And fasting can remind you that treasuring Christ is of chief concern. It doesn't matter how much missional speak we give you. If you don't treasure Christ above all things, you're just not going to reach other people for joy. You're not. So my contention is when we're not serving each other well enough and we're not actually then on mission with one another enough. And by the way, that doesn't have to be necessarily getting on a plane, although I encourage you to do so. It's here. It's at the university. It's where these new construction points are being built up. If we are absent in that, my encouragement to you is fast. But what you're fasting for is a hunger and thirst for Christ. The reason we're not on mission is because our treasuring of Christ has grown dull and we've replaced some things. It's not just because we're bad leaders or we just don't have a good volunteer system. Look, if we all treasured Christ as we should, we probably wouldn't need any structures. How to fast. Here's just some practical stuff as we head toward our close. Decide to do it. The Bible doesn't give a frequency plan. In fact, back in verse 16, it says, and when you fast, or more specifically, whenever you fast. But it certainly then says it is a practice. It just doesn't give us a frequency plan, which is great because that helps us understand something with the spiritual discipline that it doesn't become a legalistic tool. Since it doesn't give us a frequency plan, we just simply need to, first of all, decide that we will do it. Just decide that first. But there are different ways that you can plan on when, once you've decided to do it, that you plan on when to do it. So once you decide to do it, then plan on it. Prayerfully plan why. Well, again, we've talked about the motive is what is Christ's chief concern here. He doesn't talk about the frequency. He doesn't talk about necessarily anything but simply make this a personal pursuit for the most part, a private pursuit, something that's not for the purpose of show. Basically, Christ is more interested in the motivation than he is anything else. So discern your motivation, which we've already talked about. The essence of the motivation is to know Christ more. So plan on it. Plan that you'll do it. Plan why you need to do it to stoke this hunger and thirst for Christ. I would encourage you to plan what you'll do without. Now, most commonly in the scriptures, it is food. In fact, it's virtually exclusively food that's mentioned. But that doesn't mean we can't extend that fast to other things. And this is part of what I would encourage you to, pl- to pray about. I'm not saying wait to fast when we call you to it in August. You might want to go ahead and practice now. Start practicing fasting now. But as you do prayerfully consider it, consider what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Great pre- I think I love Martin Lloyd-Jones because he, he, he preached even longer than I do and much more boring sounding, but amazing. So it's the third part that makes it different than mine. But to make the matter complete, we would add that fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not only be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. 
There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special peculiar reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. That is fasting. There I suggest it is a kind of general definition of what is meant by fasting. So I would say that things that we are, that are so um, regularly practiced that they don't have to be negative things. They could be positive things. They could be things in and of themselves are good gifts from the Lord. But perhaps they're being practiced in such a way that they could become either addictive. And when I say addictive, I don't mean just regular. I mean that they are actually satisfying you in a category that only Christ should. So it could be media, like TV. I think that's probably the one in our house that we're talking about the most as being part of it, in addition to some food things, is to doing without all of that kind of media. Uh, It could be social media for you. I mean, if you find yourself running to Twitter before you run to the Scriptures or, or you find yourself interacting more socially than you do with the Lord in prayer, do something to snap yourself out of that. It could be any number of things. For the really strange people, it could be books. Maybe you just love books more than... I don't mean that. I mean, that's, that's, that's Anna. Anna loves to consume book after book after book. Actually, as weird as that sounds, it might be that you need to break a pattern of other types of consumption and replace it with the Word and prayer for seasons. But whatever it is, I just encourage you to find something that is regularly practiced. You know, um, it's Father's Day. So um, you may want to fast, dads, from uh, doing the dishes. Thank you, Kevin. It's not true. Not true. Okay, then, so first of all, decide to do it. Second of all, plan on it. And then plan on not just what you'll do without, but also how long you'll do without it. Plan your schedule around it, and then plan then how you'll break your fast. So with all that, for instance, you could do something that is, for several weeks, um, a particular meal. You could say, I'm going to do without lunches, or I'm going to do without coffee when I normally have it, or I'm going to do without something. Something that's just so regular into your habit. Related, I, I think it's good to add the food thing in there, even if you do without something else, just because there is something unique about just not eating at a regular time. Now, some people have a shorter-term period of fasting where they might have three or four days where they don't. Of course, Christ, again, there's, there's physiological things we could give you on how long you can do without food, which is much longer than you could do without water. But many people do have that kind of fast where they just do without food, but they continue to drink water. And some people do without everything for a shorter period of time for kind of a, a hyper-realized experience. Whatever your decision is, I encourage you to plan it. Plan how long you'll do it. Plan your schedule around it. Okay, so make wise decisions so you're not tempted to, to break it early and then decide how you'll break it. I mean, do better than I did in college when I first started to practice fasting. I literally remember calling Domino's at 12.01 because I determined, well, my 24-hour fast actually began the night before after I ate and then I went to sleep. So I got, I got a good unconscious fasting of about six or seven hours there. And then I was in class and, boy, that day was really hard. And, and then, uh, boy, 12.01 a.m., I guess, the next morning, Domino showed up and I ate a whole pizza by myself. You know, if I, if I really had had a more, a greater understanding of grace, I would have said that's actually a wonderful way to break a fast, but that wasn't the case. It was a completely legalistic thing. Um, and I just really missed out on so many of the points. I mean, that just happened to me on more than one occasion. So I encourage you to plan how you're going to break it and then just do it like prayer. You learn to fast by fasting while you're doing it. Pray journal. Study and memorize scripture. Pray, journal, and scripture are the three main things you must do while you fast. 
You need to journal because you need to remember what God is teaching you and telling you. You certainly need to pray. Basically, not just doing without is what's going to accomplish it for you. You have to replace what you're doing without with these disciplines that go after the Lord. I mentioned it earlier. I've regularly read that book by Henry Skugel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. That's been also a good practice for me in addition to these other things. And then I want to encourage you to keep doing it. Look, this is an, it's an act of grace, no doubt. No one achieves salvation or some higher level of heaven because they fasted really, really well. All of the disciplines of grace, including fasting, they remind us that we are made children of God through Christ. We're awaiting on his return. And in the meantime, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness, longing evermore to see him. Nonetheless, to practice fasting on a regular basis is good and healthy for you because it reminds you that you are humble enough to realize that you drift from your satisfaction in Jesus regularly. To, to, so to build in a, a kind of a, a reminder like fasting can be really good for your soul. That's up to you on how regular that is. Now, closing, Christ fasted in the wilderness in obedience to the Father to become the high priest for us that we need. If you do not know Christ, your fasting will not accomplish for you salvation. No religious practice will, not even being here this morning. Only when you know that Christ actually was tempted on your behalf, but without sin. Only when you know that he lived perfectly, having satisfied everything God requires of holy people to be in his presence. So therefore being without sin, even in motive and thought, until you trust Christ to have lived for you perfectly in your place because you have not done that. You don't deserve the presence of God because you are not holy. And then you also trust that Christ then died on the cross for your sin to become your righteousness. I mean, if the Bible, as John quoted Matthew 5, 6, hunger and thirst for righteousness for you will be satisfied. The righteousness you hunger and thirst after is Christ's because your own righteousness is, like he said to the Sadducees and Pharisees, filthy rags. But his righteousness, which is given to you on the cross, if indeed you trust that it was there for you because your righteousness deserved what happened to Jesus on the cross, death. Because it's dirty. It's sinful. Until you trust that his life and his death, his burial and his resurrection all saves you. Fasting is of no use to you spiritually. Christian, our hunger for God wanes. And it wanes quickly. We need to stoke our hunger and thirst for God above all else. I don't want you to be given to a, an overly realized mystical kind of experience. You'd probably be surprised how little in Scripture. It is there a few times, but the few times in Scripture that, that fasting is used for the purpose of making a decision, like what job I'm going to take or which direction I'm going to go, it is used, I think Joshua did, but not that often. It pales in comparison to the relational reasons for fasting, of repentance and confession and restoration of faithful practices that stoke that flame of wanting Jesus more. I don't want to stand here and dare you to do it, but I do ask you to consider practicing something that Christ said should be done, and whenever you do it, do it longing for Him. And guess what? You will be satisfied. 
It's a guarantee. God, I pray that you would help us in this. Help us to know you, to seek you, to long for you and to go after you. I pray that God, as we, as we even consider a, a spiritual practice that in our day of where everything seems so loose and free as far as spirituality, that maybe this seems like too much of a structure for some. But God, in it, this practice you've given us is a sweet practice. It's a sweet discipline that reminds us of what is most satisfying. And it's you. It's you. So God, I pray that every Christian in this room would resolve to seek you through fasting and prayer and your word in the near future. God, that even today when we have great lunches with fathers and forefathers and just celebrate it, that even the taste of food as palatable as it can be, that we are reminded that you're the bread of life, that you're the water that we drink that always satisfies and will never cause us to spiritually thirst again. Lord, may all these things be springboards to the eternal. God, if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, does not know what you've done on their behalf, but wants that, wants to trust, realizes that they're sinners in need of a Savior, and they trust and believe that the Savior is risen and is alive today, God, I pray that you would bring them to discuss that with an elder, with a leader, to to know what it means to follow you. God, may these things be done for your glory and pleasure. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.